This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Everybody and welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Daniela Gutierrez Flores, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Professor Mabel Moraña about her new book entitled Philosophy and Criticism in Latin America, published by Cambria Press. Professor Mabel Moraña, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Thank you very much, Daniela. I wonder if you could begin uh, this interview by telling our audience a little bit about yourself, um, what your scholarly education has been and how this book fits into um, your current moment as a scholar. Very good. Uh, As uh, many people know, I am from Uruguay uh, and started my studies in uh, my country, uh, both in literature and philosophy. Uh, at the time, I was uh, always debating if I should uh, devote myself to uh, literature or remain in the uh, field of philosophy. And later on, I uh, discovered that that was not uh, anything that I should be worried about, that I could uh, work uh, articulating both fields. And that's... Um, uh, this book is a perfect example of that, that uh, although I uh, continued in the, the field of literary criticism and later on cultural theory, uh, I was always um, attentive to philosophical developments uh, and always uh, trying to uh, think about literature, aesthetics, and um, uh, elements of uh, representation in connection to uh, philosophical topics. So this book is, in a way, a good uh, introduction to that articulation between letters and uh, fiction and um, uh, philosophy. That's why the book starts with um, a presentation of the different sides or the comparison or the consideration vis-a-vis between philosophy and criticism, to which extent uh, these two fields of inquiry uh, connect, 
to which extent they are uh, really differentiated, uh, how much of criticism is in philosophy and how much of philosophical thinking or philosophical speculation we can find in um, literary or cultural criticism. So uh, I think that that is an interesting um, introduction in the sense that it is it summarizes a lot of uh, questions that I myself had while I was uh, working in either one of those fields, um, discovering how much uh, of philosophical thinking uh, there is in the um, attempt to interpret literary text, either poetry, uh, of course, in the composition of essays, in fiction, in the preparation of uh, fictional scenarios, characters, situations, etc. So this book, uh, in a way, uh, that is one of the direction or one of the axes of the book. Um, but the book is divided itself, that is the introduction, but the book is divided itself in two parts. Um, in the first one, I consider um, authors from Latin America that have uh, undertaken philosophical thinking, that have philosophical writings, essays, reflections, uh, books in which they explore different ways to uh, think about Latin America and to think about political and social issues from a Latin American perspective. Uh, but of course, uh, that is not uh, completely separated from European or uh, global thinking, if you want to put it that way. Uh, you know, although we can think about the specificity of Latin American um, a philosophical reflection or Latin American thought or as others uh, authors say Latin American history of ideas uh, we still um, uh, have a lot of connections to explore between those reflections and European philosophy uh, Anglo-Saxon uh, Mediterranean uh, many cultures many societies in, in Europe or in Western in the Western Hemisphere, have thought uh, uh, about colonialism, about the nation, about society, about power, many of the topics that are the, um, the essence of Latin American philosophical thinking. Uh, and in the second part of the book, uh, then I uh, approach several European authors, such as Michel Foucault, Walter Benjamin, um, uh, let me see what else, um, Peter Snorotech, yeah, uh, trying to see how uh, they connect to Latin American problems and how much uh, Latin American thinking fits or does not fit into their philosophical paradigms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I really appreciated, um, really liked how the first part is devoted to the Latin American authors like Jose Carlos Mariategui and Enrique Duce, Lecheverria, Roger Bartra. And then the second part, um, it's where all of these names that are so familiar to um, anyone in North American academia. Um, I really like the fact that you start discussing um, 
the names of, of Latin American thought first. Um, and so at the beginning of the book, um, you state, um, and I quote here, that the objective of this book is not to recognize once again the sources of pre-Hispanic, Amerindian, or Afro-Hispanic thought in different regions and historical moments, nor does this book attempt to return to the debates around the existence of a properly Latin American philosophy. Rather, this book offers timely contributions to the process of conceptualizing a Latin American specificity and its forms of integration in larger contexts. So could you talk more about how this um, specific project, you, you already mentioned a little bit about this, but how this specific um, book project was conceived and how it fits um, into your your well philosophical and critical um, preoccupations more widely? Yes, and that clarification uh, in the introduction of the book uh, has to do with the fact that, uh, you know, a good uh, uh, part of Latin American um, philosophical or critical uh, development had been focused obsessively on the idea, uh, on the debate uh, about the possibility of existence of uh, proper Latin American thinking. Uh, the idea was that uh, being Latin American society is the byproduct of colonialism. Is it possible in those societies, in those cultures, to develop a really original philosophical uh, uh, body of ideas or works? Or is post-colonial thinking always uh, going to be tied and limited and restricted or conditioned by uh, the thinking that is being developed in what used to be or which they used to be a metropolitan a societies or metropolitan cultures in Europe in the Anglo-Saxon world etc in other words is it possible to develop a really independent original emancipated thinking in post-colonial societies or are they too much conditioned by the um, prestige and the depth uh, of uh, the European tradition. So I didn't want to get into that uh, debate because really at this point uh, I consider it a little outdated. That had been responded, uh, that, that debate had been uh, clarified from many perspectives uh, and the real, the actual development of ideas and critical thinking in Latin America shows uh, that uh, the post, the, what we could call the post-colonial condition, is uh, providing thinkers uh, and critics in uh, Latin America of a different perspective, a perspective uh, that is uh, impossible to cultivate. In, in the same manner in uh, what used to be uh, imperial uh, uh, cultures or societies. Because uh, this thinking in Latin America is showing the position of and the location, the ideological location of um, those that were, um, uh, 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 how can we say, dominated and... Um, 
subsumed into the strength of metropolitan cultures. So I really think that there are many, many examples, and what I do in this book is just an introduction to that, to the originality and the rareness in many ways of Latin American thinking that is informed by a different kind of social consciousness than the one that you can find in central, to call it that way, cultures or places of thinking. So Mm -hmm. that was basically the the idea, just not to discuss in abstract, if Latin American thinking could or could not be emancipated and original or was condemned to the mere reproduction of European ideas, but to show through the study of original thinkers how far Latin American thinking has gone in the theorization of Latin American's place at a planetary level and about you know the discussion of many other topics that were considered a part of a universal cultures. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that was basically the idea. And um, to respond to your second question, that say what is the place that this book occupies in my own uh, intellectual development? Uh, I have to say that you know since. I uh, work always in a parallel ma- uh, way uh, in literary studies, in uh, questions of the connections between aesthetics and politics, uh, between ethics and aesthetics and things like that. Uh, I'm used to thinking about literature and representation from a philosophical perspective. and. Every time I, uh, you know, read uh, European authors, I, uh, my instinct is to search for those uh, concepts or elaborations that tend to uh, help Latin American thinking to develop um, ideas uh, around uh, issues of uh, political domination, cultural uh, marginality, and things like that. Uh, so the book uh, really emerged very naturally because I had already studied, for instance, the uh, uh, contributions of Michel Foucault, who was a very, very influential thinker uh, in Latin America, very influential at all levels. Also, I have a book uh, that is um, devoted to uh, Pierre Bourdieu, Bourdieu in La Periferia in Spanish, Bourdieu at the Periphery. Um, so I also wanted to show, in the case of Pierre Bourdieu, the great contribution that uh, Bourdieu made to Latin American thinking, particularly at the methodological level. Uh, but also I um, incorporated a, a, a different aspect, critical aspect, uh, indicating how much Bourdieu would have really benefited if he had known better about Latin American specificity. Uh, Because many of the things and the concepts that he develops for the European context would have been enriched by the Latin American experience. Uh, And many of his considerations at many times, on many occasions, uh, in places where he had been very influential, like Brazil, Mexico, Etc. 
they have been a, 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 a criticism. There have been a, a serious a critique of his thinking uh, because some of his uh, models uh, do not fit really in a reality like the Latin American one. Uh, and those are realities that, of course, being uh, French, uh, although enriched also by his own experience of um, colonialism uh, between um, Europe and Argelia and things like that. Uh, Bourdieu uh, had a notion about all of those uh, elements, but he didn't know enough about Latin America. So although he was very interested, he was in Argentina debating and, you know, and, and that was a very enriching experience for him. But still, uh, in his uh, methodological apparatus, uh, many elements that the Latin American experience would have uh, helped uh, clarify are missing. So, uh, you know, what I'm trying to show is that really what is needed is a dialogue and, uh, you know, a, a, a dialogue between equals, between Latin American thinkers and European uh, philosophy. And that is one of the objectives of the book. Yeah, in in that sense, I think it's very important not only for the field of Latin American studies, but in general for, um, as you say, to anyone who's interested in actually building a dialogue and an intellectual exchange between different fields. Um, so you begin the book, um, the first chapter is... Um, a discussion of an important figure for Latin America, Latin American studies, of course, and that is the Peruvian thinker Jose Carlos Mariategui. And specifically, you discuss his reflection on the concepts of an emancipation and colonialism. Um, for our audience here, what would you say are Mariategui's contributions um, to these issues, to these questions, and more widely to Marxist thought? Well, uh, you know, Mariategui is one of the most influential and original uh, thinkers, not only uh, for Latin America, but also for Marxism uh, at large, as, as you know, as a general uh, political theory, because he was able, Mariategui was able to, um, uh, in a way, to rethink or to... Um, 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 to attempt to see different dimensions in this, after all, 19th century European theory that is Marxism. He was uh, trying to bring Marxism to Latin America and again to, to see uh, how uh, really that theory and that uh, praxis be, uh, behind uh, Marxism could um, uh, fit Latin American needs. Um, for Mariategui, the Peruvian reality um, is the primary source of his concerns. Uh, the application of Marxism uh, is uh, always subject to the um, efficiency that Marxism could have for uh, the elaboration of an emancipated uh, thought in Latin America that could be uh, useful for the integration of so many uh, uh, social sectors that have been marginalized for what we call the, re the Creole Republic. 
right? Um, so um, he uh, was um, confronting the, the Peruvian situation at times of populism, uh, in times of uh, Leguía, uh, at the time the, 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 the president of uh, Peru, uh, and uh, trying to think the place of uh, the indigenous majority of people in uh, Peruvian society. What was the role uh, of that uh, huge sector of Peruvian population that was now at the time, and we are talking about the 1930s, uh, being integrated into uh, the uh, models of modernization. So he was trying to see, you know, the importance that at moments of industrialization, uh, this huge contingency of workers, of indigenous workers, the role that they could have in the construction of uh, Andean modernity. Uh, and he understood that if those workers were going to have uh, either as campesinos or as peasants or as uh, workers in the industrial world, if they were going to have an economic role, they were always going, also going to be a very important political force. So Mariatic was trying to see, you know, how that is a Marxist theory based on the existence of a white and powerful proletariat it was going to adapt to the reality of Peru where peasants were basically the, um, the social, social subject, if you want to put it that way. So um, it's a very important um, tour de force for uh, Marxism to be applied to a reality uh, where race plays such an important role as you know, is not the main concern of Marxism. Marxism is basically thinking around the notion of class. But in the case of Peru, the notion of race is a really a substantial, or we could even say a primary element. So that is a very important correction between quotation marks to Marxism that we are witnessing here because it is showing that obviously Marx couldn't think about any possible social and political reality. He was thinking about Europe at the time when he was producing his works and having the debates that surrounded the emergence of Marxism. But for Mariategui in the 1930s, in a completely different reality, that had not even been considered by Marx, except in very general terms around the topics of colonialism and things like that, but facing the specificities of the Andean society, of the unfair and terribly fragmented Andean society, Mariatic was trying to, um, in, to uh, explore how far Marxism could go or could adapt to the challenges of post-colonial societies. Um, so that is a huge, a huge uh, uh, leap in uh, Latin American thought. Uh, if you think about it, there were no other time in history, not before Mariatigue, no after Mariatigue, where Latin America had really had an alternative to liberal thought. This is the first time, the unique time when a 
Latin Americans thinking about their own, uh, the position of Latin America in the world, in history, etc., in the process of liberation, have the, the possibility to confront liber liberal thinking with uh, Marxist um, alternatives. That is a very, very important uh, moment in the development of ideas. Uh, as you can see, uh, nowadays we usually uh, hear these uh, notions that it's impossible to think outside of liberalism because we are also immersed into it, right? That there is not like an, a different position to look at the whole picture. We are always looking to liberalism from inside. Uh, in in times of, in the times of Mariategui, uh, he opens up that other platform for people to think about the political reality and to interpret it, uh, thinking about a different possible development. Yeah, and I think in, in that sense, uh, Mariette is such a clear example of what you call across your book of the blind spot, right? Um, the ways in which Eurocentric thought missed or ignored certain aspects that were that stood outside the limits of the European realities um, or historical realities of the time, um, and how these Latin American thinkers, like Mariategui in this case, addressed these blind spots to really think about these issues in their own terms, in, in the terms of of the specific reality of Latin American countries, right? Um, Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yep. And well, it's, it, mm -hmm. go ahead. No, it's just, um, it's still a challenge, right? <laughs> Mariatini was doing this in the first half of the 20th century. Um, but this is something that um, that still happens in in the field, right? To it's, it's a challenge to be able to really pay attention to the cultural and historical specificities of a region, um, especially being as... Um, in the site of initiation of North American academia, for example. Absolutely. I think that, for instance, Mariategui, almost a century ago, uh, was calling everybody's attention about race, something that yes. today is, you know, on the table for everybody. You know, now it's everybody's agenda. But he saw that that was the key, you know, concept to unlock the problematic situation of Latin America after colonialism was gone, but he talks about what was translated in my book as vestigial colonialism that was in Spanish, colonialismo superstite, meaning that part of colonialism that Aníbal Quijano would call later coloniality, meaning those elements of colonialism that... Perpetuate themselves into modernity, right? So that's where the difference between independence and emancipation becomes important. Because one thing is to declare independence and see that, you know, um, Portugal and Spain uh, um, are left behind as a metropolitan powers, and now we are independent nation states and this and that. But the true emancipation, not only of societies, but also of uh, intellectual categories, 
is through which Latin Americans can think about themselves. That is a process that is still going on. That's why we see today the uh, discourses about uh, or the topics of uh, decolonization, because that's still a work that has to be done, that has to be completed, that has to be developed. So um, Maria Tiji has immense importance in Latin American thinking. No students of Latin American studies should... uh, (laughs) should ignore or obtain any kind of degree without knowing exactly what Mariatigi did for Latin America and for uh, Western thinking in general. Uh, it's a very, very, very important uh, um, uh, source or tradition that then was developed by Cornijo Polar in the field of literary studies, was developed uh, at the sociological level by Aníbal Quijano and many others, and also in critical theory, but um, a Bolivian uh, critic uh, Silvia Rivera Cusicanqui and so many others, and by so many also in the United States that follow those um, steps. So uh, that is a real, uh, really original and innovative tradition that uh, has no uh, roots in European thinking, right? Uh, because, uh, you know, uh, Europe, uh, who utilized race as a way to legitimize uh, the appropriation of human and natural resources in the colonies, um, did not theorize about race or ethnicity. They just took that as a given, right, that supposedly justified the domination of others, in the benefit of European elites. But (laughs) looking at that from the perspective of of the uh, Latin American subject or subjectivity, uh, the situation is different, right? Uh, That's why Latin American thought uh, theorized uh, race and ethnicity and is still doing it. But Mariategui's foundational uh, thinking is very, very important in this process. Yeah, and um, also Mariategui's thought is so connected to other um, colonial thinkers, no? Like Inca Garcilaso de la Vega that you bring up. Absolutely. um, That his very original thinking has roots in the continent, um, although one could argue if Inca Garcilaso was or not um, Peruvian, that's out of, out of um, the question here, right? He was absolutely Peruvian. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. But he, he had, as, as the, the social subject had at the time, uh, bicultural nature, you know, but he identified, you know, a lot of his thinking identified with the maternal um, uh, side uh, and while he was trained in European thinking, that's why his ideas are so incredibly uh, challenging, because they managed to articulate and even to integrate the conflict between both uh, sides of the of the coin. Right? It's a very very important uh, element that Mariategui knew very very well. Uh, but you know, in this book, I decided to go from modern times. 
to the present because I, I was not going, you know, to Guamampoma de Ayala. You know, that is, a, that is another book. And much of that book has been written by people who know a lot about Andean colonial literature. But this book is, of, you know, it's a problematization of modernity, basically. Yeah. And I, I was interested in your chapter um, about Bolívar Echeverria, titled 1492. Um, you mentioned that his work has not received the attention that it deserves. You're and talking it, about Dussel? Yes, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yes, sorry, Dussel. Um, and that you considered um, his work fundamental for for the field and in general, for the advancement of, of some of these questions in the field of Latin American studies. So could you share um, some of the ideas that you consider so um, central and indispensable um, of his thought? Yes. I, I don't know what is we needed to happen for people to really pay um, Enrique Dussel uh, the attention that he deserves He's a, a thinker of a, a transnational a stature, really. And he had been recognized by many uh, European philosophers. He had debated with many of them. Uh, he now uh, has been, um, has a, a, a very solid uh, place in uh, Mexican uh, thought. Um, because he has developed uh, most of his uh, intellectual uh, career in Mexico, although he's from Argentina uh, originally. Uh, but still, his ideas and his thinking and the really the dimension and the projection of his ideas are not really uh, 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 recognized yet, in my opinion. I don't know what it's going to take. In some cases, after the author is not with us anymore, then a huge reconsideration of his or her works takes place, and maybe we are going to witness that. But for now, still, Enrique Dussel is, you know, his ideas circulate in... In, in an important uh, area or uh, intellectual space, but not enough, in my opinion. He's really an incredibly uh, productive. He has, I don't know how many works, uh, you know, huge volumes of ethics and aesthetics and social studies and uh, studies of uh, religion and this and that. Uh, but the originality of his ideas, the way in which he proposes to reread uh, Western history, uh, paying attention to the fact that, for instance, the centrality of Europe really occurred when Spain discovered, between quotation marks, the New World. Before that, uh, Way before that, uh, uh, really, uh, Arab or Muslim nations or Muslim uh, cultures and uh, Oriental cultures were the center of the universe, the center of the world, uh, right? Uh, the, those cultures were the ones that were 
that had that were considered the nucleus of civilization in, in the world. But with the discovery of the new world, uh, you, Europe repositions itself in a different way, right? Uh, and with that, uh, a different uh, cultural um, uh, redefinition starts to take place. And uh, in the book that is uh, called uh, 1492, uh, Enrique Dussel uh, explains how uh, the so-called uh, discovery of America uh, really, uh, that America needs to be rediscovered, right? Because uh, in many ways, the, dis- the so-called discovery of America, discovery only for those who just arrived, because many, many cultures were, st- were living here, that had already discovered their own territories, right? <laughs> uh, but uh, he says, um, uh, in many ways, that it conceals uh, America because it's uh, included in elaborations that really don't let the place of that of those cultures shine. It don't let those uh, uh, original cultures uh, be uh, visible to the Europeans, because they're only being interpreted and represented through European lenses, right, through the lenses of the dominators, who see in the new world an opportunity for enrichment, for the exploitation of new territories, for commerce, for expansion, etc., etc. So it's very important how he shows that when we talk about Eurocentrism, sometimes we miss the main aspect of the issue because we are not seeing that that centrality of Europe, that, by the way, is a matter of the past, because in so many ways Europe is not at the center of anything right now, right? Mm -hmm. The the central focus of globalization is not Europe, right, Uh, at the moment. But Dussel is thinking about modern times and uh, how uh, really uh, most of our misconceptions about the supposedly marginal uh, place of Latin America or in in the borders of the global systems has to do with our uh, ideological in the Marxist sense of false consciousness, ideological uh, understanding of the centrality of Europe. Uh, 1482 is an indispensable book. It's a book that everybody should read and reread and uh, rethink and, uh, you know, uh, discuss with others and, uh, you know, even uh, criticize, if you wish. But it's uh, a source for uh, a lot of reflection about critical thinking, about political developments, about the place of Latin America in global times, etc., etc. So in that sense, um, uh, Enrique Dussel's contributions are enormous, not to mention that he was also at the center of the um, uh, philosophy of liberation, a very, very important movement uh, of emancipation that has a lot to do uh, with the uh, agendas of decolonization of uh, the global south. 
for instance, is impossible to understand decolonization without understanding the role that played at the time in the philosophy of liberation, of, of which Dussel is not the only uh, in, in member, but there is a movement that was uh, transnationalized and that uh, took into consideration the possible articulation of politics and religion. A very, very important um, source of ideas and projects uh, and critiques of modernity uh, and capitalism, etc., etc. Yeah, as as I was reading this um, first section of of the book, and but really across all of it, um, one issue that uh, kept coming up um, repeatedly, with beginning with Mariategui, but it's also also obviously present in, in Dussel, in Bourdieu, and in the chapter on, on humanism, is that of the of the political ethos of the Latin American intellectual. Um, that that is a central question for many of of the figures that you discuss. So, what would you say? Um, how have these thinkers conceived their role in in Latin American society as as intellectuals and philosophers? Well, uh, Daniela, you have uh, read the book attentively because really that is one of the, the, the main directions that I follow there, the, uh, you know, the definition of Latin American intellectualism or the role of uh, Latin American intellectuals always uh, deeply involved in political issues. Uh, that is in... in a characteristic that you can find in many post-colonial societies. Uh, that's why uh, the uh, philosophers or the critics from India are also so, uh, in many, many cases, very um, um, politically engaged or from Argelia or from many other, other places. Uh, you know, it's that idea that it's impossible to think about life, about the development of... Um, uh, ideas about society, about the, the about being, about death, etc., without uh, uh, understanding the political implications of ideas. So, um, in Latin American intellectuals have always been involved in political thinking. You know, in many cases. Uh, intellectuals, especially uh, in the 19th century, uh, uh, who were uh, presidents or who had uh, important political roles like Sarmiento or many others, uh, who had a very humanistic uh, formation or background. Uh, the consideration of literature, philosophy, history, and all, all of those fields as Part of political understanding of reality was common to all intellectuals from the beginning. And, you know, there is a direct line that um, um, connects a, a, a Creole letrados, ¿verdad? The letrados criollos uh, of the colonial times to uh, what they become the intellectuals of independent nations, right? We don't call them letrados anymore, like Alfonso Reyes or Andres Bello. Those are the intellectuals 
national intellectuals, right? Because they are tied, they are connected to the nation state as a political and administrative formation. Uh, so um, that is a very important element to understand uh, the role of intellectual, the definition of intellectual mission, right? Uh, that is not to uh, cultivate an alternative world, right? Uh, um, Torre de Marfil or something, some place to uh, really uh, um, uh, escape from reality. But the role of intellectuals was to get immersed into the conflicts of society and to be a critical voice, right? Uh, Latin American intellectuals never understood their role as uh, organic intellectuals in the sense of uh, participating or having a... Um, a, a cooperative role uh, with respect to political power. The intellectual has to be outside those circles in order to be able to criticize. Uh, to, uh, and with this, I don't mean uh, destructive cr uh, criticism, but uh, to um, develop a critique of the system, right? Uh, and always his heart had to be uh, with those that were marginalized from the system. He always had to be uh, in, uh, for uh, integration, for inclusion, right? Uh, it would be very interesting to explore how much of that uh, mission or that definition of intellectual roles uh, is changing today, right? And now that many intellectuals are turning into uh, political or cultural advisors or uh, technocrats. See what I mean? Right there, they become so specialized, and Lyotard works on that in his book on uh, the postmodern. It uh, uh, becomes so immersed into the intricacies of technological thinking uh, that in many cases they, uh, they leave out their commitment, their political commitment and their political definition. A technocrat works for the powers that, that are already established, right? And if to the development of, you know, more sophisticated political apparatus or is on the side of power, right? A political intellectual should have been conceived, and the case of Mariategui is, is a very good example, as somebody who needs to keep his distance or her distance from power in order not to be contaminated. And by that, Mariategui also uh, included the notion of the university, right? He said, I keep myself as far as possible from university uh, thinking, right? Because in a way, he understood that the university domesticates uh, thinking, right? Uh, channels people uh, or think or ideas in uh, the course in courses that have already been prescribed or that can be controlled. While Mariategui's thinking is much more revolutionary in the constructive sense of the word, right? In the sense that uh, you know, uh, uh, from uh, uh, social and political change and economic change come from critique of the establishment, not from a complicity with it, right? 
And, you know, that distance was a key um, to Mariategui and, you know, to many other intellectuals that followed. And that is um, somewhat an issue that you touch upon in, um, by the end of the book, which is the place of, of humanism in the context of um, a university market, <laughs> an educational market that is really governed by neoliberal um, logics, right? What is the place of the intellectual now in this context? Your question is, what is the place of the intellectual in this context? Yeah, just if you could talk um, a little bit about this question that you discuss in this um, chapter about humanism. Yeah, uh, well, you know, humanism, uh, and by extension, the humanities in general terms, uh, have been under attack for a long, long time. Right, and now that everything is controlled by the market, obviously it's not in the humanities where people are going to make money, right? Uh, because the humanities, as we were saying, tend to to criticize or tend to see the conflicts between this and that, and, and, and the need for change and identify with different subjects uh, at a social political level, etc. So there is a conflict between the humanities and the uh, current society ruled by the market, right? That is an obvious uh, conflict that we see uh, having a direct impact on the university today at every level, very, very clearly in the United States. In Latin America, the dynamics are different and it should take a long time to, to understand that other dynamics. But in the case of the United States, where the market is so prominent, we can see how the humanities really are considered like fields that have nothing to offer, right? All of that, you know, is something that people do in order to cultivate their minds, you know, in, in, in a specific manner, but are not really something that will be pragmatically useful for society as a whole, right? Uh, the current uh, state of affairs does not need people thinking, they need people consuming, right? They need people following, right? They need people who uh, want to be a part of um, in the, in the uh, the system of consumption and production and constant productivity, right? We all of us have, in a way, uh, are in a way part of that wheel, right, of a constant productivity, right? Uh, so uh, humanism has a different logic, right? Uh, and in many ways, uh, uh, I'm not saying that for that reason humanism cannot be articulated to the current um, uh, model of society, but I'm saying that we as humanists uh, have been uh, so far inefficient in that uh, kind of critical or um, uh, in that kind of uh, selective integration. You know, we are still part of, in my opinion, educational systems that 
do not completely understand, we don't even com uh, completely understand the role of what we have to offer in the current world, right? Many of us uh, at some point start, uh, uh, you know, make a stop in whatever we are doing or thinking to reflect on how useful or unuseful it really is in view of the things that are happening in the world, what do we do, right? How, how I'm really, really uh, contributing, you know, to the, the tragedies of uh, uh, migration, to the problems presented for public health, to the horrors of uh, uh, this uh, terrible uh, prominence of uh, the, the thought and the praxis of the right. Right. So in, in many ways, all of us have that problem of, of guilty consciousness, right, with respect of what we do, right? And that is because we have been unable to, um, to rethink, uh, um, because this is not the first time that the humanities face a challenge like that, right? Uh, to to feel that the that what they have to offer is legitimate and useful and fundamental for the understanding of uh, the world. Um, so we are still struggling with our consciousness and with the, um, in many ways, uh, obsolete uh, models of thinking that uh, that we are not effectively placing as a tradition. We are still, in many cases, trying to revive. Uh, things that really do not adapt to the current uh, situation, but that is for lack of alternatives. We need another Mariategui showing us how to think about this from outside, right? how to uh, find another alternative. And in my opinion, also the fall of uh, uh, the left uh, has been a tragedy, right? In the sense that before uh, Latin American thinking uh, was guided by that uh, utopia of a different uh, possible world. Um, and, you know, we have been still, we're still struggling with the elaboration of failure. Um, that is a process that some people might think that is going very, very slowly, but, uh, you know, it's going to take the time that it's going to take. Um, that is tragic because that left us with no clear alternatives to the state of affairs that we are witnessing in the world today. Something that has uh, that is affecting the environment, that is affecting the position of women, the situation of uh, young people, the new generations, the state of education, etc., etc. So the humanities are, in my opinion, a little behind in the debate. That is something that we should recognize and do, you know, whatever we can to, you know, to stimulate, to revive, to create spaces for dialogue, for debate even. I don't know if you have the same idea that people do not debate anymore. People go to conferences or, you know, online or, or, or in presence and people love to agree, 
you know, let's, you know, agree to disagree. And, and in that sense, you know, uh, people say different things that you can see that are really uh, controversial, but people say nothing and then they go to their own, you know, they return to their own uh, place and, and nothing happened. It, it, it wasn't like that, uh, right? And we, I think that we need to recover the passion of debate, in order to, you know, to communicate to the new generation that not everything is lost and that, you know, we have to be brave enough to assign responsibility. What is happening to the environment? What is happening to the, so to the system of public health? What is happening, right? And who is responsible for it? Not agree to disagree anymore. <laughs> that would be my recommendation. Well, I think um, in that sense, this book is so stimulating um, because it is about um, polemics and disagreements between different lines of thought um, and thinkers. So, yeah, I think in, in that sense, it's it's such a stimulating read for anyone who who wants to recover that ethos of debate. Um, yes, yes, Daniel, I think that you are right on that. <laughs> and, well, I've taken enough of your time now. I wanted to wrap up um, by just noting that this book was originally uh, published in Spanish, right? Yes, yes, yeah. by Metales, Peta Metales Pisados, uh, an independent uh, press in Santiago de Chile and now in translation by Cambria Press. So if anyone out there is listening and just know that um, it is, you can read it in both languages. Um, I did want to ask you um, what this translation uh, to English uh, means to this particular book for you um, in this um, current moment that we're in. Oh, very, very important for me. Uh, Andrew Astor and I work closely uh, in the translation of this book, also in the translation of my book, uh, The Monster as a War Machine, that in many, many ways is uh, thematically very linked to this one, although the corpus that I explore in that book is completely different. Um, but uh, for me, to this translation allowed me to circulate with different audiences and different kind of students and colleagues, and that has been an interesting, interesting thing. Yes, very absolutely. valuable in precisely building those networks that are so needed. Um, right. Well, thank you so much, Professor Moraña, for your time. This was such a stimulating conversation. Thank you, Danielle. It's been a pleasure for me, really. really. Thank, you. Thank you very much. Take care.